So this morning we're going to jump into a brand new series that we're going to follow through the next five weeks as we head into Easter. And uh, the the title of the series is One-on-One with Jesus. And so we are going to dive into the Gospel of John and look at five stories, five encounters that Jesus had with individuals. Because when we read the scriptures, we understand something pretty important. Everything that Jesus did, everything that he said, everywhere that he went, every encounter that he had was done with purpose and intention. There's no accidents involved. It's all done with a purpose. And so that means every time we read about Jesus engaging and encountering somebody in the scriptures, there's something going on there that is not only for the person he's encountering there, but there's something going on there that's for us as well, for us to learn and understand about who he is. And so we're going to take the time to to walk through a number of the very important stories. Uh, And today, we're going to start with a story in in John chapter 3, where Jesus encounters a man named Nicodemus. And this is, this is an important story because uh, the, the concept of what we're dealing with today is, is Jesus, when Jesus engages one-on-one with the person who's religious. Now, when I use the term religious, that's a loaded term. Depending on where you're coming from, that's either a good thing or that's a bad thing. Now, in our culture, a lot of times outside the church, someone will use the, the, the phrase that that person is religious. And sometimes, and many times for somebody outside the church, that's almost a compliment, meaning there's something about them that is morally right. They go to church. They try to be a good person. So they're a religious person. Now, when you enter into the church, normally when we use the term, you are religious, that's almost an insult. Because that means that you're legalistic, that you are judgmental, and you're the kind of person that nobody wants to be around. Everybody knows those kind of people, right? You can raise your hand. I'm not accusing you of being that. Just the person sitting to your left. That's all, okay? But that's, that's how we, we look at that. So when we talk about the, the phrase or the word religious, we're talking really about, and what we're going to encounter in this, is somebody who's legalistic. In fact, just before we read the passage, let me give you some understanding about this encounter before we read it. Jesus is encountering a man named Nicodemus who is a Pharisee. So a Pharisee, is, it's important to understand who Jesus is, is talking about, who he's engaging. Pharisees, there were a number of things that were true about them. One of them is that they were separatists, which means they established them as some kind of moral authority. That was their, their identity. That was just a little bit above everybody else, so they distanced themselves from the average common person as being just a little bit better. So they set themselves up as separate from those who were more sinful than themselves. Also, they were experts, they were experts in the scriptures, and so they had studied the scriptures. So they, they knew the scriptures better than anybody else and, and claimed to, be, to, to do so. And then also they were legalists. They had studied the law, and not only the law that God gave, but all the law that man piled on top of that of how to interpret the law. Like, for example, there's between 30 and 40 things that you can't, according to the law, added on to the, the commandment that you should keep the Sabbath. They came up with 30 to 40 rules that identified these things are considered work, and if you do them, you violated the Sabbath. So they were experts. They knew everything about the law. So this is the kind of person that Jesus is encountering, somebody who's morally, at least they think they're morally superior. They are legalistic in their approach to understanding God, and they have this understanding of the scriptures that nobody else can touch. Now, I'm not accusing anybody in this room of being this way, but one or two of these things sometimes are true of us. And if that's the case, we're religious. Not in a good way, but in a bad way, in a negative way. But I want you to see how Jesus encounters this kind of person because this is what he comes to do today in our lives, to encounter us right where we're at. And so if you have your Bibles, let me read. I'm going to start in verse 1, and I'll read under verse 15 of, of John 3. 
says there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said this to you, you must be born again. Verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who was born of the Spirit. And verse 9, Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you uh, earthly things and you did not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. This is a pretty incredible encounter. Nicodemus is getting hit with a very powerful left hook that he was not even ready for. He's coming to Jesus because he thinks he has some understanding, but he wants more understanding. But the understanding he's getting is not the understanding that he wants. Make sense? And so in this this scenario, what he's looking for is he's looking with a religious mind frame, frame of mind that tells him, this is how it works. These are the things I'm looking for. But he's not getting what he came for. He's getting more than he came for. And there's three things that I, I want you and I to consider about Nicodemus that may be true about us, about this religious way of living and thinking that sometimes we get stuck in. And the first one you can see in verse 2, and that is that we have this concept that our religious way of living, the way that we engage God, is that we engage on the basis of this way is that it's beneficial. Let me explain what I mean by that. So it says in verse 2, Rabbi, he says to Jesus, we know that you are a teacher come from God, for no one can do these signs unless God is with him. So what is Nicodemus doing? He's repeating back what is true of all the crowds that have been starting to follow Jesus. Jesus obviously gained popularity because obviously he won, he spoke with authority, but what was really gaining popularity for Jesus was his power where he would show up and a blind person could see and a lame person could walk. He was healing people. And so these amazing signs are happening and so he's gaining a following. But why is he gaining a following at that point? Because they all are enamored and in love with Jesus? No, because Jesus has something to offer that they want. So, and, and you can see that as the progression through the Gospels. When you read any of the Gospels, you see the crowds swell and then they die down because Jesus starts saying difficult things. But what's happening is they weren't so interested in, oh, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to follow you. They were saying, Jesus, I want you to heal me. Jesus, I want you to miraculously feed me like you did on that hillside. That's why, you know, after, after Jesus feeds thousands of people, they follow him and they take the long way, but he goes across the sea and they follow him and they show up again. Why? Because they want another free meal. Because Jesus was beneficial to them. There was a benefit. Nicodemus comes with the same mindset. There's something about you that's from God because you're doing miracles and no one can do that apart from God. So I'm here to investigate what is it that I can get from you. We can see that from his, his frame of mind, he's not interested necessarily in wanting to follow Jesus, but wanting to get what Jesus offers him. Now, none of us would ever, ever treat God or anyone else like that, would we? Of course we do. People become a means to our end. God becomes a means to our end. 
As long as God is giving me what I want, then God is good. That the moment he stops, then he's no good, no good anymore, and maybe he's not even God anymore in my life. That's a religious mindset. Because for us, it's not about the relationship, it's about what we can receive. I remember when I was young, I was confronted with this for the first time in my life when I realized something that was really wrong in me. When I grew up, at, I grew up at church on the way out in Van Nuys, and there was a, an older gentleman, his name was Mr. Curtis, and Mr. Curtis had a, a whole other identity than his name. He was known as the Candyman. And as long as I can remember when I was growing up, from the first time we started attending church on the way, every service he was at, he would bring a bag of candy with him. And it was a big bag, and I, I think for like a decade he did this as far as I can remember, and he used the same bag, and it was just crinkled and wrinkled, but you knew that like heaven was inside, right? And every time the service was over, if you were like in children's ministry or you were in the service with your kids, the whole goal of every kid at church on the way, and there were a lot of them, was to find Mr. Curtis first because it was first come, first serve. And so if we could find him, he would let you reach into the bag and grab some candy. And we, I did that for years. I remember it was like I was more motivated to go to church for Mr. Curtis than I was for Jesus because I was going to get candy. But then I remember when Mr. Curtis passed away. There was sadness amongst everybody, but particularly among the kids. And so I remember in my sadness, I remember coming to church and being disappointed, not that Mr. Curtis wasn't there anymore, but that the candy that he brought was no longer going to be at church. It took me a while to figure out how manipulative and how selfish that was, that I really didn't care about this generous and kind man. All I cared about is what he could give me. And sometimes, whether we want to admit it or not, that's exactly how we approach God. Okay, I'm going to reach in the candy bag and get out what I want, and then once I get it, I'm not so concerned with you anymore. Or, if you don't give me what I want, then you really can't be God in my life because there has to be an answer somewhere else. That's, that's the mindset that Nicodemus comes to Jesus with. It's the mindset that we embrace. And there's a second kind of religious way, kind of a context we have, and that is the religious ways also is it's natural. So verse 4 Nicodemus' response to Jesus after he says you have to be born again is this. He says, how can a man be born when he is old? Good question, right? He says, can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? What's going on? Nicodemus did not, he didn't get it. It went right over his head. Because what he's thinking is he's thinking it's got to be something natural and normal. So he's describing the natural birth process for human beings and saying, do I have to go back in my mother's womb? This is the way I'm understanding it. In fact, we can tell from the way this is structured in the context that he was being a little cynical with Jesus. Like, come on, really? Born again? That was kind of the tone. Like, I have to go back. And he's saying something ridiculous. As an old man, I have to go back into my mother's womb? Because he's not getting this. Why? Because it's not making sense to him. It doesn't seem normal. You're saying I have to be born Again, I was born once. Isn't that enough? And Jesus is saying there's a whole other category that you're missing. So he's struggling with this understanding. And that's a religious mindset. Because what does a religious mindset do? It does. It defines God in a box so that we can feel safe and controlled with him. That's what it does. When something steps out of what we can explain, then somehow we're a little bit fearful and a little concerned and there's some anxiety involved. So religion comes to God and says, I'm going to explain to you how you're supposed to work so I know that you're real. Here's my 10 hoops, jump through all 10 of them, and then I can say, you're God. God doesn't work that way. But that's how Nicodemus came to him. That's how his understanding was. And because of that, he was, he was missing it. Remember, he's talking to a, an expert uh, that, that knows the scriptures more than anybody. And he's, Jesus is saying, listen, you can study the system, you can study the law, you can understand those things, you can get more information, but it's not making any difference for you. 
because you don't see what's right in front of you. In fact, we know this is true because if you get to John chapter 5, listen to John chapter 5, verses 39 to 40. Jesus says this to some other religious leaders. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness of me or about me. And then verse 40, he says, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. What does a religious person do? Does. Well, if I'm going to know about God, I got to study more. I got to memorize more verses. Not that anything of this is bad, but you know what I really need? I need another Bible study. No offense. The majority of us do not need another Bible study. Seriously. We're overweight on Bible verses. If, if you could, God could show you your, your spiritual silhouette of your spiritual body, majority of us in the church, no offense, we're fat. We are. It's really quiet in here. It's true. Because we think the answer to knowing God is knowing more. That's not the answer to knowing The answer to knowing God is knowing him. It's different. You will know more, and, and Bible study is important, and the scriptures are important, and information is important. But Jesus is Jesus saying, listen, you've looked to the scriptures for more information on finding life, and you are blind to the reality that I am life standing in front of you. How many times do we do that? We want more information. I want another study. And God says, you don't need another study because I'm not a subject to study. I'm a person to be known. So we don't need study. We need time with him. We need life experience with his presence in us, his spirit working through us to know him more and more. And Nicodemus didn't have a category for that because he couldn't, it didn't seem natural. Born again, what are you talking about? And how many times do we say to God, we just don't get it? And then there's a third way, a third understanding of this religious way, and that is that the, the, this understanding of religious way is that it's believable, that I can actually believe it. So Nicodemus says in verse 9 to Jesus, how can these things be? He's not believing. He is not buying this born again thing. He's like, this is like, I, I, I can't believe this. This doesn't make sense to me. I can't buy into it. I can't trust this. He, he's not believing. And, and that's a struggle for all of us. Because we want to believe, but we think that believing means we have to understand everything. We do. If there's something that we don't understand about God, then we don't believe it. Here's the challenge with that. We think that if there's an equation to figure out God, we can plug in the factors, we can plug in the numbers, and boom, we have the answer that we want. Some kind of scientific process. There's a problem with that. Jesus is not an equation to be solved. He's a God to be known. It's different. And how many times do we not want God to be mysterious? We want him to be practical and obvious and straightforward. Read the Bible. You're going to realize that there's going to be, there's more that you and I don't know about, about God than we do know about God. And some of us struggle with that. Because the problem is, is if you knew everything about God, guess who you'd be? You'd be God. We struggle with God being mysterious, God being a little bit unknown. And, and the tension, we'll talk about that. But, but so Nicodemus is coming and saying, I can't believe this because I can't understand it. I can't explain it. Therefore, I can't believe it. You know how many of us have missed God's presence? We have missed who Jesus is because we figure there's something that we can't figure out, therefore we reject him based on what we can't figure out? I am so God, glad that God is more than I can understand. The last God I would want to serve is a God that I can contain in my knowledge and my understanding in my own life. I, I don't want that. But God is mysterious, and we have to be okay with that because if he isn't, then we've just crafted a God of our own making, and in a sense, what we've become is idolaters and not followers of Jesus. Okay, it's really quiet this morning. First service, they're like, wow, we had coffee. It's time change, right? You guys were all late with your alarm. You were going to come to first, but you had to come to second. I get it, right? So 
that's the context of our religious kind of state of mind when we approach God. But Jesus outlines in this passage, there's a way to engage this that we have to go to to understand what Nicodemus was missing and what we miss about Jesus. The first thing is this. Look at verse 3. The way of Jesus, as opposed to the way of the religious, is that it's based on new birth, not birthright. This is, this is verse 3. Let me read this. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, for you and I, we're like, okay, I can kind of understand this. Nicodemus, this was almost offensive to him. And the reason why is, remember who he's talking to. Nicodemus is Jewish. And the common understanding in that day and age was that if you were born a Jew, you had a free pass into the kingdom of God. I'm Jewish, so therefore, I'm Jewish, I'm in. End of discussion, problem solved, it's all good. And then Jesus says, no, 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 unless you're born again, you're not going to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus in his mind, like, oh, I already got that one, I'm Jewish, don't you see? You're Jewish, I'm Jewish, we're good. And Jesus is saying, no. No, it's not about your birthright. It's about the understanding of a new birth in your life, which is completely different than what Nicodemus was understanding. And why is that significant? I think it did this first service. I think it's important to do it second service. So there's a group of people I want to talk to specifically, and I am in this category, so I'm speaking to myself. If you are a second, third, fourth, fifth, tenth generation Christian, I'm talking to you. If you've come to Christ apart from your family in your lifetime, you're good. I'm not talking to you right now. I'm talking to the rest of us. It is a good thing to be raised in a Christian household, but there is a pitfall to being raised in a Christian household. You buy into the birthright, the birthright mentality. You do. I did. Why? Because my parents are Christians. My siblings are Christians. I go to church. I read the Bible because my parents tell me to. I memorize verses. I do all those things. Therefore, by default, I'm a Christian. It's my heritage. There's a danger in that because Jesus is challenging that mentality. He's saying there has to be a rebirth in you for you to truly experience life. And many of you think you're alive, but you're actually dead. And you haven't come to life yet. You've come to religion, but you haven't come to life. You're just doing what you're supposed to do. And that is so dangerous. Because what happens is this is what happens in our culture. And we all scratch our head. I'm one of them. Eventually, that kind of faith is not good enough. So somebody wakes up one morning and normally, not always, but normally this happens between the age of 18 and 25, when life starts to shift and you start to move out from underneath mom and dad's authority in your life and you start making decisions for yourself and you're thinking, this doesn't work for me. So you start questioning everything that you were raised in because whether you know it or not, you've been raised in religion. You haven't known Jesus your whole life. You've known of him, but you haven't known him personally. And that's why it's interesting. We always, oh, it's the secular universities. We send off the best and brightest of Christians and they get corrupted by the world. No! They just discover for the first time their faith has never been their faith. It's been mom and dad's faith. That's why it's so important for us to understand what Jesus is saying. If you're a parent, it's so important for you to understand that your kids don't, don't, you don't raise your kids to be moral purists and think that you've done a good job. Because that means you just made them religious. Because once they leave your household, guess what they won't be anymore? A moral purist. Because they'll do what they want to do. But if they truly know Jesus, they see Jesus in you, and you let them fail, and you let them experience grace and mercy, and you let them hash it out of what it looks like in their life, they will be in a place when they leave your household, they will have their own faith. Because they'll know Jesus. That's the hope for the next generation. 
It's not working necessarily on the next generation. It's working on our generation as parents to say, how do I help my child know Jesus and not worry about the fact that they may mess up and not being fearful of their brokenness, that that brokenness may be the very avenue that God uses for them to understand who he is. Tim and Stacy, particularly Tim, has a whole new understanding of who Jesus is. Not that we ever encourage sin and brokenness, but it's a reality that all of us face, but it brings us deeper into understanding who Jesus is, so we can't run from it. Second thing of the way of Jesus is that it is based on rebirth, not childbirth. Now, let me explain this. It makes sense. So verses 5 through 7, Jesus is trying to get Nicodemus to understand something. It's not about being born as a human being because everybody gets that. It's about being, in a sense, spiritually born, a whole other dynamic and dimension. So Jesus says this, verses 5 through 7, he makes some really important phrases. He says uh, that you, you must be born of water and spirit. Then he says, flesh gives birth to flesh. Spirit gives birth to spirit. You must be born again. What is Jesus saying? He's saying everybody's born physically. That's, that's part of being human. Everybody is born into this world. But not everybody is reborn spiritually into a new reality of what it means to have life through Jesus. That's why Nicodemus is struggling. He's thinking, just one birth, just one birth. And why is that significant? Because something happens when you experience this rebirth, when you embrace Jesus, when you give your life over to him and you become alive and you experience what life means is that now you become a part of God's family in a way that you've never experienced before. And here's the difference. I've heard so many people both in the church and outside the church say this phrase, aren't we all just God's children? Yes and no. Did God create humanity? Absolutely. Is he the father of all? Absolutely. But are we his children? Are all of us his children? No, not according to the Bible. We're in the image of God. We are created by God. But until we know Jesus and walk in a relationship with him, we don't become his children. Why is this significant? Because all of us, if we have kids, or obviously from our parents, we all have a father and a mother. But we all don't have a dad and a mom. There's a difference between the two. So my wife, Kim, she loves to get me into these shows that I really don't want to watch. She likes to watch different shows that kind of like engage different parts of your brain and experiences and stuff. And so one, one of the shows that she's been watching lately, it's because we've been fostering for a while now, and she's really interested in, you know, adoption and when someone's adopted at a young age and then they lose, lose kind of connection with their parents and getting reunited. And so there's this show called Long Lost Family. Anybody seen it? And it's this whole thing about kind of people who now that are adults knew that they were adopted when they were a baby. They don't, they never had any contact with their parents, so now they're trying to reunite. And so they tell stories each time. And so we were watching the show, and seriously, I'll sit down for like, I'm going to give it 30 seconds, and I'm like five minutes, and then like, before I know it, I'm like, ah, oh, man, I watched the whole hour of this stupid show, because it was so good. And there was this one story, there's two twins, uh, so they, they were born, and mom could not care for them. She was going through a really rough time in life, so she gave them up for adoption. So now they're in their like 50s or 60s, and they've never even seen her or known her. So they start this journey of trying to find her, and so the, through this show, they actually find, I find her, and before they actually reunite them and bring them in the same place at the same time, they're interviewing the twins, and they're saying, hey, we found her. We found your mother. She lives here. We're going to bring you together. And one of them just starts sobbing, and she's just, like, crying, and she's so excited. She's so overwhelmed. And the other one's just kind of sitting there, like, stone-faced, hardly any emotion. I'm like, this is weird. And the one with no emotion said something that just, like, grabbed me. She said, I think it's wonderful that you found her, but you need to understand, to me, she's my mother, but she's not my mom. She may be eventually, but right now, she's just my mother. 
She's my biological mother. That's all that she is. And I remember she, she said that and as they did get reunited, there started to be some mending of that. But the shift and the difference between a mother and a mom or a father and a dad is profound. When you and I say yes to Jesus, guess what we become? Children of God that now refer to the father, not just as the father, but as dad. That's why it even says when we, when we pray earnestly, you remember the phrase, Abba, Father, which means dad. It's a very endearing term. Why? Because there's a level of intimacy you experience with the God of the universe when you know Jesus that apart from him, you won't have. You will, you will, be a, you will bear his image because you're created and you will understand that God created everything and because of that, you're part of that and you reflect his image, but you won't know him to the level of being personal with him. Nicodemus had that reality. He had a father, but he didn't have a dad. And Jesus is trying to help him to understand that in this context. And there's a third thing. Look at verse 8. The way of Jesus is based on what is unknown instead of what is known. This is the one we struggle with. Jesus gives a great illustration. Verse 8. He says, The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who's born of the Spirit. Nicodemus is probably going, What? You're talking rebirth, and now you're talking wind. You lost me, right? Jesus is saying something so profound. What he's saying is that you can feel the impact of God in your life, but you can't explain him, and that's hard. So we live in Simi Valley. We're experts on what? Wind, right? I realized that the first month we moved here, I think we had two days there was no wind. I'm like, where in the world did we move to? We moved from the rain to the wind, right? But wind is very unique because I can guarantee no one in this room ever has or ever will see wind. You won't see it. Not with your naked eye. You will not see wind. But you will see the influence and the impact of the wind, correct? You will feel the force of the wind, but you won't see it. Jesus is using this analogy to say the way God works in our life, the way that we are reborn is that we can't explain it, but we can definitely point to the evidence of it in our lives. And that's hard because we want to see it, understand it, embrace it, and then know it. That's not the way it works. And so that means that the way that God works is that his impact comes in our life from the direction we're not expecting, and he blows right through and does miraculous things, and we're like, I don't know how this worked. It just worked. That's why when miracles happen sometimes in the Gospels, people said, I don't know how he did it. He just did it. I would rather not explain God. I would rather just ex- receive what God wants to do in my life. One of, the, it's one of the benefits of when I'll tell you, one of the things in coming from Oregon where I used to have to rake wet leaves, I have not had to rake leaves in Simi Valley. Thank Jesus. In fact, when we were in the fall, which was before the winter, and now, by the way, we're in summer. We've skipped spring altogether. But... You know, leaves are falling on my front yard, and I'm like, ah, I'm going to actually maybe have to rake. And then I thought, no, I live in Simi Valley. I'm going to wait. I did. I waited, and I waited, and I waited, and I waited. And sure enough, those beautiful things called Santa Ana's kicked up. And the next morning I woke up, and there wasn't a leaf on my trees or on my grass. And I said, thank you for the wind. Anybody relate? I don't know how it happened. I didn't see the wind coming, but that night I heard the wind. And all I know is I woke up the next morning, and all the leaves are gone. I don't know where they are. They're probably in your front yard. Sorry. (laughs) You're going to have to rake now. But I can't explain them when I can't see it, but I can feel it and I can see its impact. And the same thing, Jesus saying, listen, don't try to understand rebirth. Just embrace it and see its impact in your life. And that's what he was trying to communicate to Nicodemus. And so out of that, 
there's an understanding that Jesus mentions two things that are really important that help us to move from this religious mindset to the way he wants us to engage him so that we understand who he is and we experience what true life is all about. There's two things. Look at verses 11 and 12 because the first thing Jesus says that you and I have to do to move beyond religion is we have to truly believe. And this isn't mustering up enough faith to say, okay, finally I've, 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 I've risen above the faith threshold and now I can really understand. So Jesus says this in verses 11 and 12. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you uh, earthly things and you do not believe, how can I uh, then you believe if I tell you heavenly things? What is Jesus saying? He's saying, because Nicodemus says, hey, I, I've heard about your miracles. I might have even seen some of your miracles. And I'm kind of come here to investigate that. But Jesus is saying, you've heard all that, but you know what? You haven't accepted the testimony about who I am. You're pushing back on that. You're, you're not accept, accepting me for who I am. You're pushing back on that because that you're not going to believe. You're not going to get this because the key is not to try to understand it. The key is for you to embrace me and accept me. And when you do that, then you will believe. That's so important. Nicodemus had to grapple with this in his life and, and understand that because so many times why Jesus spoke with authority, why Jesus did miracles was to point people to Jesus. That was the whole reason the Gospel of John was written. In fact, listen to what John says about his own writings. In John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's the whole reason we have the Gospel of John. That's the reason we have the Gospels. Why? So we read and we understand something. We don't understand it all and we begin to believe. And then we do, who do we encounter? We encounter Jesus, the Son of God. And encountering him, then we have life. Now again, I'm speaking from a perspective of someone who came to know Jesus when I was six years old. But I know the older I've gotten, the more I understand something. My understanding of who Jesus is has to grow and develop and change. Jesus never changes. God never changes. But my understanding of him better. Because if it doesn't, then I don't really know him. And the reason, one of the things that I do constantly is I will constantly go back to the Gospels. That's one of the reasons we're in the Gospels again. We'll go to the Old Testament. We'll go to other passages. We always have to get back to who? Jesus. That's it. That's the bottom line. We have to remind, and we forget who Jesus is. We forget his identity, forget what he's done in our life, so we go back to Jesus. So for me, I force myself in my devotional with him, or even if it's studying, I go back to the Gospels, and even though I've read it feels like a gazillion times, I'm going to go again. And every single time I discover something I've forgotten or did not know about who Jesus is. In fact, here's an encouragement, if not a challenge to you, as we go through the next five weeks. Take the Gospel of John and read through it again and ask one question. Who is Jesus? And let the Holy Spirit show you, remind you, and maybe reveal to you something new that you've forgotten about who Jesus is. I know pastors who've literally done that. Probably not the best evangelistic technique for what we would say you should do, but to walk up to a non-believer and in a conversation, knowing they're going through brokenness in their life, and said, here, here's a Bible, read the Gospel of John, and then when you figure out who Jesus is, come back and talk to me. Pastors have done that, and guess what? People come back, and they'll make these statements like, I think Jesus is God. You're a non-Christian saying you think Jesus is God? Yeah, why? Because that's what, that's what the story seems to indicate. 
And that he actually died on the cross and he actually provides forgiveness. And he actually says that there's a way to live life that's different than what I'm living. This is not from somebody going to a Bible study. This is from somebody just opening the scriptures, which we were always afraid of. Can they really understand it? And by God's spirit, somehow seeing enough in the scriptures to know who Jesus is. Doing the opposite of what the religious leaders did. They studied the scriptures and they missed Jesus. And yet some person who has no theological training, no background in God, can open the scriptures and go, oh, I see him right there. I've discovered what life is. It's in Jesus. So maybe if you've known Jesus for a while, if someone who doesn't know Jesus can benefit from the Gospel of John, how much more can we benefit from the Gospel of John? So I encourage you to take some time to read it. Then there's a final thing of moving beyond religion. Not only do we believe, but we actually receive. This is where the rubber meets the road. So Jesus or uh, uh, Jesus says something to Nicodemus, which is important in the context. He says in verses 14 and 15, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man may be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. What is Jesus talking about? Back in, in uh, Numbers 21, there's a story that's told about the many times that God's people, they're out in the wilderness, they begin complaining again because they don't think there's enough water to drink and there's not enough food to eat. So they're saying, God, you're not a good God. Why don't we go back to Egypt? So... God, in his love for his people, believe it or not, brings about some quick correction. And he does it in a really unique way. He doesn't just slap them on the wrist. He actually sends serpents into their midst that begin to bite them with poison and venom, and some of them die. That'll get your attention. Talk about correction. It's like, oh, I don't like the, thing, the way things are going. Let's send some snakes, right? Don't do that if you're a parent, by the way. That's not a good parenting technique, okay? But so what's happening is some of them are dying. So then God says to Moses knowing, obviously, this is an image of what's going to come thousands of years later. He says, I want you to take a pole, and I want you to build, basically, make a, a bronze serpent, and put it on this pole, and you hold that up. And when someone is bitten by one of these venomous snakes, they are to look at that as a symbol of their salvation, and they will be healed. So that's what's happening, is they would get, we would get bitten because of their complaining, which they're guilty, but God provides a way out, holds up, they look at the, the bronze snake, and suddenly they're miraculously healed, and they don't die from the, the snake bite. Fast forward to the New Testament. This is exactly the image that Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus, that the Son of Man, Jesus is saying, me, is going to be lifted up on a cross, that if people are drawn to me, and they embrace me and what I've done on the cross, then they will receive the same kind of salvation that they did thousands of years ago. It's a powerful image. And what Jesus is saying is for, for, for the Jews in, in, in the Old Testament to do that meant that they had to do something. They had to come to where the bronze snake was. They had to look at it until they received their healing. It wasn't enough for them just to believe, ah, oh, Moses has got a bronze snake. I'm good. They actually had to go to a place and look at it to make sure that they could receive salvation. Why is that significant? Because you and I think believing means I just know. I just know about God. I know about the Bible. I know about Jesus. And so I believe. That's not belief. Belief is belief into something, not believing of something. And that's what Jesus is trying to get down to the core with Nicodemus, is that you are believing into me. You receive the salvation I have that comes from my sacrifice on the cross. Therefore, you experience life. It's not a one-way street. It's something that you and I have to embrace in our lives. And why is that significant? Because we all want salvation, but we all think it comes when we understand who Jesus is, but then we add a bunch of other things into our life to experience life. If you were here last week, John Looney had a great message on the gospel. My wife and my family and I took a day off. We went to Universal Studios. We were worshiping Jesus on the Harry Potter ride, so you'll have to forgive us, okay? But, but John talked about how we take the gospel and we add to it. 
And so it's the gospel plus this in my life that makes me experience life. We do that with Jesus. What do we do with Jesus? We say, oh, Jesus, you're the one, you're the only one, we worship you, but then really, what are we, where do we go to, ex- to experience life? We don't always go to Jesus. We go to Jesus and my career. We go to Jesus and my money. We go to Jesus where I live. We go to Jesus in this relationship. We go to anything. We always add, and you know how we know that? Because how that thing other than Jesus goes determines what our life looks like. If it's really about Jesus, our job can go away tomorrow and we're still at peace. If it's really about Jesus, you can go bankrupt and you still are okay with that. Your, your relationships can go through struggles and you still turn to Jesus for your salvation in your life and you can navigate broken relationships. But if your relationship falls apart and you fall apart, guess who your God is? That relationship. So what is it? It sounds really cliche, but Jesus really is the only way. He said it himself. There's no other option. And if, our, if, if your only hope is, is not Jesus, it's not that you have no hope, it's that you have false hope. And false hope is worse than no hope. Because you think you have something, and some, one day you wake up and realize, oh, I made a huge mistake. The thing that I thought would bring me life has actually brought me death. And the one who has life is the one that I ignored. So Jesus was communicating to Nicodemus, Nicodemus, you got part of this. You got step one. You engaged the scriptures. You're coming to ask questions, but you're coming with a religious mindset. So that means you don't get it. It's me. And then he says, he's saying, you can't understand me. You can't define me. You can just embrace me and receive me and then watch what I'll do in your life. That's what Jesus says to us today. I'm going to ask you just to, to close your eyes, bow your heads, and, and uh, we're going to conclude. But I, wanna, I feel there's an important response. There is some really good news about Nicodemus that if you will read through the Gospel of John, you'll discover when you get to chapter 19, after Jesus' death on the cross, there's a group of people that come to take his body down and to take his body into the tomb. And one of those is Nicodemus. Which means somewhere down the line, Nicodemus got it. So much so that a Pharisee, a religious leader, the, the group of people that so hated Jesus and wanted to be crucified, he was one of them. He was willing to sacrifice his reputation as a Pharisee to be with Jesus at the moment where he was lifted up on a cross to die for the sins of everyone. And he identified with Jesus. That means that he got it. And that means that no matter what your background is, no matter if you were raised Christian or you've been in the church for years, there is hope that if you don't really know Jesus but think you do, you can discover who he is today. I want you to, to just again with your eyes closed just to focus when when I was growing up and, and I remember in a significant part of my spiritual journey I kneeled on a couch when I was six years old and prayed a prayer with my dad about coming to Jesus and, and that's a marker but, but that wasn't the place where I really started to know Jesus. In fact, I knew that because for years when I was a kid I would lay awake at night in my bed and I would think about what would happen if I died that night and I would stand before Jesus and I would have to give an answer to him of why I should get into heaven. And I remember this haunted me and I would lay there at night and I would think of all the reasons why, why I was the right person that Jesus could say I could come into heaven. In fact, I was, as I looked even at Nicodemus and I thought, man, I was like him because Nicodemus had a criteria that he worked with of why 
he was the person he thought he was supposed to be. He was an expert in law. He was morally pure. He knew the scriptures. And Jesus said, none of that's enough. And I would sit there at night and I would think, and these are the things that came to mind. I would say to myself, I would rehearse. When I stand before Jesus, I'm going to say, I have good parents. I would say, I, I've done my best to be a good person. And even at that age, I'd say, I didn't fight with my sister today. I would list all the things that I had done that was good. And I remember trying to memorize those because I lived in fear that if I died, that I wouldn't have the right answer, then Jesus would send me to hell. And then when I became a middle schooler and in my later middle school years into high school, for the first time in my life, I started to realize that Jesus was more than rules and regulations. Jesus was more than a belief system. In fact, Jesus was more than the faith of my parents. And I remember getting angry and saying, Jesus, if you're more than what my parents say that you are, then you have to reveal yourself to me. And he walked me through crisis in middle school to get my heart open enough to show me for myself, he's real. And he is alive, and he's powerful, and he's active. And yes, I believe things about him, and yes, I study the scriptures. But at the end of the day, he says, I want you to know me. And once I truly knew him, then my understanding of who he is completely changed. So if you're here today and and you know that you have come to a place where if you start thinking and you're honest with yourself, you're more like Nicodemus. You've got the system down. You've got the Bible verses down. You've got the information down. But deep down inside, there isn't life. And Jesus has come to bring life today for you. In fact, he describes the life in John 10. He says it's abundant. It's beyond. It's indescribable. It's something that you can't define It's better than you'd ever expected. That's what it means. And if that's the life that you desire today, whether you've been in the church or maybe this is your first time understanding who Jesus is, that life is made available to everyone, to the religious and the non-religious. So right now, where you're at, in just a moment, I'm going to pray. And I'm going to ask you to make a response. Just as... Israel and just as Nicodemus had to receive, they had to respond to what Jesus was saying. The Israelites had to respond to the way that God had provided salvation for them. And I'm going to ask you to respond in a physical way this morning. And so when I pray in a moment, I'm going to ask you to do something. I'm going to ask you to raise your hand before the Lord. And, and if this is who you are, you're saying, I thought I knew you, but I'm not experiencing life. I've done all the Christian things and I feel like I've gotten things right even though I'm not perfect, but, but I'm empty inside and I don't feel like I really know you. That you would raise your hand and you would say, Jesus, would you give me your life today? I identify with you and your death on the cross that pays for my sin and your resurrection that gives me life. Just as Nicodemus was there at the moment of Jesus' death identifying with who he is, we are here today 2,000 or thousands of years later saying, I want to do the same thing. And maybe for the first time, if that's you and you think that that's the life that you've just you've desired is to know Jesus to experience life something that you can't explain but something you can experience and that's you then you raise your hand too Lord Jesus as we we lift our hand before you Lord I know that you see our hearts you see our hands and you know Lord that deep down inside our desire is to have life the life that you came to give us we don't want to be people who are religious and we try to contain and understand you We don't want to have to be able to explain everything. We just want to know you. We don't want to have to see the wind. We want to feel the wind. 
in us. So Lord Jesus, would you come now and by your spirit, would you begin to breathe your life, breathe your forgiveness, breathe your restoration, breathe your healing into our lives because Lord, we need you desperately. So that Lord, from here forward, Lord, Lord much like what Tim said earlier, that there's a marker of stone on the side of a river that says God was faithful, God was real, God was present that today there you would place a marker in each one of our lives to say this is the day that either I experienced life for the first time or I was truly born again the way Jesus, what you called us to be and life began for each one of us. Lord Jesus, would you do that in each of us today? We thank you, Lord, in your name.